0: reading this morning is from 1st Samuel chapter 23 verses 1 through 5. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack those Philist- these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah, How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Father, we pray that you would use this time in David's life you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would revere yourself to us, and we would find joy, Father, in knowing you more deeply, and knowing how you work more deeply, and that we would see you more deeply than we ever have, Father, for your glory and for your greatness, in your name, amen. Well, good morning again. fear is a powerful emotion. It can make us do or think things that to a sober mind would be irrational. For instance, a couple of examples of this. When I was about 10 years old, my brother told me that Papa Smurf was hiding in my closet waiting for me to go to sleep so he can come out and get me. Papa Smurf, right? You know, the cartoon, he's like this big, right? It's a ridiculous idea. And now at 43, I go, how, how dumb is that? That I would be so afraid. And yet my fears drove me to believe it to the point that I barely slept that night. And my brother thought it was hilarious, or bring it a little bit more closer to home, um, when, when Katie and I were married two years, um, she had a miscarriage. It was what we, we wanted to have kids. She felt like her, her life was, she meant, was meant to be a mom. I couldn't wait, wait to be a dad. Found out she was pregnant, we were so excited, told our family, um, and uh, at about 10 weeks or so, she had a miscarriage. And it was, it was devastating for us. Um, that song, Blessed Be the Name, actually came on the radio. And for about 15 years, I couldn't hear it without crying because it brought back all those emotions. I had to control myself a little bit too. Thanks. I appreciate that, Aaron. But what happened after the miscarriage is our faith was tested. Our faith in God was tested. We began to fear. Could we never have children? Maybe what we wanted was never going to happen. What do we what do, we do if, if it's just the two of us for the rest of our lives? You know, when you're younger, you're like, well, I mean, I love the guy, but for crying out loud, do I really want to live just with him? She's learned to love me since then. No. And we, we had to wrestle. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of frustration. There was a lot of mostly when, you, when we look back on it, fear of not knowing what the future was going to hold. And maybe even perhaps we had put so much emphasis on being a family with a husband and wife with children that that, in a sense, became our idol. And then when the miscarriage happened, it shook everything up. Now, obviously, you know, we have three children, um, and we, we love having the three kids, and, but by the time our oldest, Timothy, was born, we had already made the decision if she never gets pregnant again, then we would consider adoption. I mean, we were moving in that direction, and then lo, lo and behold, she gets pregnant, and we have three kids now. And praise God, it doesn't always work out that way, and we understand that, but fear drove us at that time Without knowing the future, without knowing what was going to happen, it drove us to question ourselves. Who do we really trust in? Throughout 1 Samuel, David has fought and soundly defeated the Philistines over and over and over again. I mean, every time he would go out, it's described as a great defeat of the Philistines. Fear should have been the furthest thing from the minds of his men. They know this. They know who David is, and yet when David wanted to help the city of Keilah, which ironically is the job of the king, so where is Saul at this point? David's men are afraid of the Philistines. But instead of belittling or even trying to rally the troops, David does something interesting. He goes to the source above all sources. He doesn't try to convince them and say, hey, you know how much the, I got their number. Like, I am undefeated against the Philistines. Remember Goliath? Yeah, I was, just, I was just a teenager. Yeah, and I cut off his head. You remember that? Like, this is David, right? And he doesn't do that. He instead, he goes to God and he inquires of the Lord. So let's read the rest of this section through verse fourteen, and see what happens. David has inquired of the Lord; he saves the inhabitants of Keilah, and then starting in verse six, when Abithar, the son of Ahimelech had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said. God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that goes that has gates and bars. Sorry, they're new to me too, and when everything's blurry, I realize I have to. All right, verse eight. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting against him, harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, "Bring the ephod here." Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. And then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, He will surrender you. And then David and his men who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Five different times, the idea of hands... Is given in this passage. And as we've learned, if something is repeated, it's probably important or it could be very important to understanding the main point or the main focus of that passage. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what do, what does the word hand, what do these hands have to do with God? If life and safety is given to those who run to the king, as we found out last week, then what happens when the king himself is in trouble? Who does the king run to? And what is given to the king when he runs to whoever or whatever he's going to? twice David seeks the Lord. He inquires of God as to whether to rescue Keilah out of the hands of the Philistines. And twice he's given confirmation from God Go, attack the Philistines, for I will give them into your hand. And so David and his men, they go to Keilah, they defeat the Philistines with a great blow. Keilah is saved, everybody's happy. But when Saul hears of David's whereabouts, he musters, quote-unquote, all the people. So he musters all the people of Israel, all of the fighting men against David. Talk about overkill, right? Like, I'm just going to bring all of my army to go kill this one man. He also, Saul also sees it as an opportunity that God has provided for him, which is extremely ironic because throughout 1 Samuel, Saul has known that God has been against him for quite some time. It's important to note the clear distinction between David and Saul. David seeks the counsel of the Lord before moving forward, but in Saul's case, Saul assumes that God has delivered David into his hands, not because he inquired of the Lord, but because he hears that David's in Keilah, a city with gates and bars. He believes that David is going to stay in Keilah because Keilah is a fortified city, that David feels safe in this fortified city. But what Saul forgets is that David doesn't trust in fortified cities his trust is found in a greater power after hearing that Saul is on his way David fears that the residents of Keilah are going to hand him over to Saul which okay is a rational fear the the king is coming to lay siege to your city you could either have him destroy the city or give up the one man to save your city it makes perfect sense and again, instead of giving into his fears and running away, he inquires of the Lord. Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And God says, yes. And so David listens to God, and he flees into the wilderness, once again eluding Saul. And then we come to verse 14, the last sentence in this passage. And I think this, is, this really drives the point home of what, what um, the author of First Samuel is trying to get at. It says, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David's hand, Saul's hand, to be in someone's hand is to give the impression of power. I have power over this person. I have authority over this person. Who is really in control of a situation? Who is the strongest? Who is going to win out But the reality is that neither David nor Saul really have the ultimate power in this situation. Saul assumes that God has given David into his hand, but God wouldn't let that happen. In fact, he never lets it happen. Saul's just not learning his lesson. And the Philistines were given into David's hand. Why? Because God handed them over to him. He says in chapter 23, verse 4, for I will give the Philistines... Into your hand. The true power, the true hand at work is the hand of God. And as we've seen at this point, at points in 1 Samuel, David gives us insight into what is going on in his mind through some of the Psalms that he's written by him. And praise God, he's written another Psalm Psalm 63 is titled this way, A Psalm of David When He Was in the Wilderness of Judah. Now, to be more academic, to be a little bit more, um, uh, how do you say it? There's some debate on whether this psalm, Psalm 63, was written by David during the time that he was fleeing Saul or when he was fleeing his son Absalom in chapter, or, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 16. But but both instances are actually very similar. David is fleeing into the wilderness, pursued by someone who wants to keep him from taking the throne or being on the throne. In one instance, it's Saul. In the other instance, his son. And his life is in danger in both situations. And so, whether it's this one or that one, the truth of Psalm 63 is the same. So, as we read it, we should ask these questions. These are the questions I want us to ask as I'm reading through this psalm. What is being revealed about God? You know, so often we we talk about application. We're going to get there towards the end, like application. What is the application? Well, today, a little hint, the application is about God. Who is God? What is being revealed about God in this Psalm. How do these revelations of God then affect David's response? And then from that comes the application of well, okay. So then, what can we learn from David's response to the reality of who God is? Because God is the same God then as He is right now. He's not a different God. He doesn't change. He doesn't shift. He doesn't move. He's not a um, a God of wrath only, and then suddenly a God of love as some like to think of him from the Old Testament and the New Testament. God is the same God. The God that David is speaking of is the same God that we are worshiping right now today. So this psalm is broken into three sections. The first focuses on God's character. The second focuses on God's right hand. And the third focuses on God's judgments. And spoiler alert, David is not at the heart of any of these three sections. So turn to Psalm 63. It's not going to be on the screen. Um, so hopefully you can pull out your Bible app, pull out your Bible, turn to Psalm 63. And we're going to read all 11 verses. Oh God, now remember, this is David speaking. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because of your steadfast love, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David begins the psalm by speaking of how he seeks thirsts and faints for God, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, I'm not a poem guy. I really am not. I, it's a struggle for me. In fact, I did a seminar on how to, how to understand and read the Psalms, and it, it was a two-and-a-half-day seminar, like intensive, and it wasn't until probably about one and three-quarters of the way through that I went, oh, I think I kind of understand this. Okay, So that's where my mindset is when it comes to poem, poems, but this language that he's using here, even for me, seems pretty obvious. David seeks thirst and faints for God in such a way that it's as if he's in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Have you ever thirsted so much your mouth and your throat and your tongue are dry? I remember playing football and the coaches thought they were, you know, all powerful and they wouldn't give us water. That was back in the old days, you know. They wouldn't give us a water break and your mouth is dry. You can't even sweat anymore. It's, It's dangerous. It was wrong. But that's what David is like. He thirsts and seeks and faints for God. Talk about vivid language. The beholding of God's power and glory necessarily drives David to realize, I need you, God. His soul thirsts and his flesh faints out of need for the Lord. And God's revelation of his power and glory, his very name, his very character, drives David's lips and hands to the praise and worship of God. God's character, who he is, is life to David. It is God's character which drives David to earnestly seek after him. He wants God more and more and more than he even wants his own life. Now, this is not piety on David's part he is realizing that without God, he is a dead man. Now, if you put it in to the situation of 1 Samuel 23, without God, Saul would have killed David months or years before. Without God, he has no life. And that doesn't drive David to be, woe is me. He goes, I want more of that. I want more of you, Lord. And then in the next four verses, so this is the second section, you got verses 1 through 4, and then you've got 5 through 8 David focuses on God's right hand, and the, the hand of God is satisfaction for David's soul. And my Bible study notes say, this is how they say it, only in praise to God and in intimate communion with Him will David feel spiritually content. It's not about the throne. It's not about safety. It's about God. And in Him, And in him alone does David find satisfaction. In the watches of the night, when one is most vulnerable to fear, God has not left him. For in the shadow of the Lord's wings, he says, I will sing for joy. You hear these words. He's singing for joy while Saul is gathering an entire army to come kill him. And I complain... When my kids wake me up at night when they were little because, you know, they had a bad dream and I get all frustrated. God, why would you let this happen? Or the miscarriage. God, why would you let this happen? That's not what happens. He runs. He flees to the refuge under the wings as if a mother bird covering her babies. And he finds joy which is why we say joy is not dependent upon the circumstances of life around us. It's dependent on who you worship. If we worship ourselves, if we worship the world, if we worship money or jobs or even our own sinful desires and we begin to worship those, those things fail, right? Because they are horrible kings. They never fully satisfy. They never keep their promises. But when the Lord is our king, when the Lord is our sustenance, when the Lord is our refuge, that's when we find true joy. And not only do we get it, we want more of it. And we want more of Him. God is a refuge in times of fear and trouble. He is, for David, being upholding David by His right hand. And that right hand is a sign of power and authority. When you read that in Scripture, that is what is is being spoken of. David is sustained not by his own power, not by his own authority. He is the king, is he not? He is the true anointed king. Saul has been rejected by God. David has been accepted. But David isn't sustained by his power or his authority, but by God's. Without God, David would still be a shepherd boy sitting in the pasture. David would have confronted the giant Goliath and he would have been killed without God. Saul would have killed him long before now without God. And so David has no need to fear his enemies. He has no need to fear his enemies because God will judge those who stand against him as in him, God, because as we found out, if you are an enemy of the king, you are the enemy of the one who made him king. You are an enemy of God. And so God brings judgment upon those who stand against him and his anointed king. Those who seek to destroy David are the ones who oppose, who are actually opposing God, and they are the wicked, those who oppose oppose the Lord's anointed king. And to oppose, oppose God Is to to oppose God's anointed is to oppose God Himself, and His judgments will come upon them, and they will be given over to the power of the sword. David says, "They're not going to have a slap on the wrist. They will no longer be able to spew out lies because they're going to be dead." They're going to be left for dead for the jackals to eat. This is the vivid language of God's judgment. We like to think that God is, in His judgments, He's going to be like, "Now you know you did wrong, right, Saul?" I mean, I've, I've tried. I've tried to tell you this. Like, I'm, I'm just. I'm just going to have. Yeah, you, you I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discipline you, okay? You ready for that? Like, he doesn't do that. He kills them and leaves his body to be eaten by the jackals because they oppose God himself. We cannot belittle the judgment of God as if he is a whiny, wimpy parent who slaps the hand of the child. God is the creator of the world who demands holiness and he is perfect in every way. And if you oppose God, the final judgment will be death. And Saul finds this out later when he goes against the Philistines and he and his son and his entire household, minus one, is killed by the sword. God brings judgment upon His enemies and upon the enemies of His King. But David and all who follow him will rejoice in the Lord. When everything seems to be going wrong, when David's life is on the line, he looks upon the character, the power, and the judgment of God, and he rejoices. When David remembers who God is, he doesn't complain that God isn't working fast enough or he's not working in a right way. You're doing this wrong, God. Now, if you could just listen to me, I'll tell you how how to really make it work out. He doesn't do that. Instead, he meditates, praises, and blesses the Lord. He sees the greatness and the majesty of God, and David is driven to seek Him ever more Earnestly, even as Saul is pursuing him, even as the people of Keilah are willing to hand him over, the rescuer hand him over to Saul, even as his men are fearful, David looks upon God and his soul rejoices. This is way deeper than any emotional high. This is a deep, intimate personal relationship with the living God whose hand is the true hand of power. So who is God? Who is God? Well, according to this psalm, He is the very being who is powerful and glorious and majestic and satisfaction and joy and protection and judgment all at once. David beholds God, and it drives him to rejoice. He sees God for who He truly is, and it makes him want more of Him. There's a principle for, for us as God's people to live by. This is why, why is this psalm written for God's people? We have to remember that there's Jews who are reading this psalm. There's Jews who are reading this true story in 1 Samuel 23. What, what is... What is trying to be driven home is, it's not that God's just that God sustains us in times of trouble. It's not just that God will get us through hardships. He does, that's all true, but it's so much more than that. Because what happens with, if that difficulty or that hardship doesn't end, or it leads to death or pain or suffering? This is where the health, wealth, prosperity gospel falls apart. Because I tell you what, we're all going to be dead one day, and no matter how many times I pray, I'm not going to live forever on this earth. I had a friend who got cancer, and she truly believed that if she just prayed enough, God is going to heal me. And within two years, she had passed away. And it's heartbreaking to see that. I mean, have faith, absolutely. But let's be honest, there are times the pain doesn't end. Read the life of Paul in the New Testament. His life was not easy. So what do we do when life is not easy? What do we do when hardship comes? As God's people, where do we run to? Well, David tells us to earnestly seek the Lord, and He will give you refuge. See, that's the thing about refuge. Now, I know in Minnesota, we have tornadoes, but South Dakota, okay, that was just life, okay? You have a tornado, oh, there's another tornado, and everybody goes, oh, really? And they all stand out on their front porch to go look for it. It's so common, like, sweet, this will be awesome. Well, they tell you, go find refuge, right? Now you're going like, I don't trust your judgment, Mark. Yeah, that's okay. That's all right. Where do we go? They say, go find refuge. Go to the bottom in the basement of your house. You know, go stay away from windows. All of these things, find these refuge. Well, does it change the fact that there's a, a tornado outside or a hurricane or a snowstorm? Does it, me running down into that refuge, does it suddenly mean the problem's going to end? no. The point of a refuge is to be safe in the middle of everything, to be in a place that you are protected. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer. It doesn't mean that hardship's not going to continue. It doesn't mean that you're not going to die from a sickness or pain. And David says, earnestly seek the Lord and He will give you refuge. This is where, you know, I've said a couple weeks ago, like we can't make ourselves David because, you know, we're not the anointed king unless that anointed king says, be like me. And this is where he says, follow my example, look what I've done. Look what I did. Not because I'm awesome, but because God is awesome. The Lord gives refuge to those who earnestly seek Him. Where Saul sought his own wisdom, David sought the Lord. Where Saul turned away from the Lord, David drew ever nearer to the Lord. Where Saul yearned and thirsted for the protection of his throne, David yearned and thirsted for the Lord. You you see in the difference here? Don't be like Saul, be like David. Be like the true king. We saw last week that those who run to the king will find life, but the power and the source of that life is not found in David. David is only a signpost which points the people of God to the true power and authority, the Lord Himself. And yes, I am meaning God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. If we seek the Lord, then we will find refuge from our enemies of sin, death, Satan, the world. If we earnestly pursue God, do you see that? That's when we say, oh, seek the Lord, we kind of like, oh, well, I'm going to meditate and dwell. That's just like a tiny part. Prayer is just a tiny part. Meditation is just a, on God is just a tiny part of seeking. it. It is actively pursuing the Lord. And when we do that, we will, we will find the right hand of God to hold and care, and empower, teach, guide, encourage us in the midst of fear-filled times. Even Christ, who is God incarnate, gave us this example. In His humanity, He's in the garden before His arrest, and Jesus is praying to the Father. He knows what's about to happen. He knows He's about to suffer greatly at the hands of men, and yet Even in the midst of a fear-filled time, he turns to God, and this is what he says in Matthew 26. We're all very aware of this. If we have any kind of church or Bible background, he says, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Where did Christ turn in the midst of a fear-filled time? He turned to his Father. He turned to the Lord. So where do you turn in times of fear and powerlessness? Where do you and I find our refuge? Do we try to fix it ourselves? That's usually what I do. I sit there and dwell, okay, so I need to pray more, okay? I need to set time aside to read more, okay? I need to, I need to set up a, a timeline of doing this, 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 and this, and then that's going to make this outcome. That's not... That's not really usually how God works. Probably most of the time, that's not how God works. He lets us do that, and then we're utterly failed at the end. He's like, Yeah, I know. Because you didn't turn to me, you trusted in yourself. David in Christ shows us that there is only one direction to turn, and it's to the Lord. We are told in Scripture, in this world we will have troubles, but we have no need to fear the world because Christ has overcome the world. As God's people, we are in the mighty right hand of the Father. We may need to flee into the wilderness, and our lives may even be taken from us, but we are still secure and safe in His mighty hand. We look upon the very character of God as David did, and, and we crave Him more than our own lives. We, are, we tend to look at the things of this world, get on social media. Wait, should we name all this, the, the things that we're struggling with in this world, or is that just going to be depressing? No, it should it shouldn't be, right? It shouldn't be after we're hearing this. Hey, okay, possible war with Russia. Don't even get me started on the Olympics. COVID, masks, vaccines, riots, convoys. I mean let's just say like I, I had to wake up this morning and I was tired. Like, let's get really basic, right? Didn't get enough sleep last night. Ugh. The kids are arguing. Ugh. The youth are at of youth retreat and they're coming home. Are they going to be home safely? Like, there's always something we can worry about, right? We never in this world have a short, a shortness on things to worry about, things to be afraid of. And The major distinction in a situation like this between God's people and the world is that the world says, how can I fix this? And we as God's people say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When we see who God is, we are driven to praise and to glorify Him, even if we don't do it well. Only in God, only in intimate communion with Him will we feel spiritually content. And so, this is the application. Earnestly seek the Lord. Earnestly pursue the Lord. For it is in Him alone that we find true and lasting refuge. Father, I pray we could we could lay out steps god do this do this do this do this but in the end what it means is that we need to pursue pursue you father open our eyes to your character to who you are god drive our our joy in the midst of yearning and thirsting for you as if we are in a desert and our our mouth is parched; We're craving water. May we crave you in the same way, Father. That when this world, the things of our life, even just the basic daily fear-filled issues that can drive us, drive us to insanity, Father, because they are out of our hands, remind us as your people, Father, if we seek you and you, we will find refuge from the storm. In you, we will find pure joy. In you, we will find utter satisfaction. In you, we will find life everlasting. And so we say to you, Father, blessed be your name. Blessed be your name, Father. Whatever may happen to us, blessed be your name. For your goodness, for your greatness. We give you praise, Father, and may we never cease as your people to do so in your name. Amen. Join us standing as we...